Hello everyone, welcome to Random Encounter 283 or 283. My name is John O'Logan and okay, here's the thing. Usually Random Encounter is the highlight of my day. I love recording Random Encounter. I love talking to people. I love talking about games, but it is also two o'clock on Saturday afternoon, November 25th, which means that I'm going to have access to the first episode of the Doctor Who 60th anniversary specials in about two hours from now. Uh, so sorry to everyone on this recording, but this is not going to be the highlight of my day. Um, I've been a Doctor Who fan since I was five years old. I used to watch uh, The Fifth Doctor on PBS when I was a kid. Um, and uh, even before the reboot series happened in 2005, I owned many of the big Finnish audio plays starring some of the uh, old Doctors. And in fact, I was a fan of uh, the series before it was rebooted because uh, the first, the pilot episode, Rose, in 2005, uh, got leaked and released on uh, BitTorrent about a month early for, I think it was the CBC screwed up. Uh, so I saw it a month before it aired and uh, yeah, so I've been a Doctor Who fan for decades and uh, with the new 60th anniversary specials, uh, Russell T Davies is back. David Tennant is back as the doctor temporarily. Donna is back temporarily. So yeah, I'm excited for Doctor Who in a way that I haven't been for years and years. Uh, and our guests today are Caitlin. Hi. Uh, don't, what would my Doctor Who name be? I don't know. I mean, Caitlin, you could be a companion. Actually, you'd be a great companion. Aww. Um, and Ben. Hey, Ben. Hey. Yeah, I know nothing about Doctor Who, so. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Caitlin, you, I, we talked briefly. You're a Doctor Who fan of the more recent series. Uh, yeah, I really started watching with uh, Jodie Whittaker as a doctor because uh, I'm all about uh, female representation and um, we need more women doctors. Like, mm -hmm. like. Doctor Who doctors, doctors. I, I want more series with, where the doctor is a woman. So, well, now that the door has been opened, I suspect that is going to be. Uh, I suspect that's going to be continuing because the the new doctor is uh, black, and I, I think that a lot of doors opened up in the last few years. So now it doesn't seem like there are any restrictions on the casting like there were for decades and decades and decades. Um, anyway, uh, for anyone out there listening. Uh, if you've never seen Doctor Who, maybe not these specials because these specials are following up on Russell T. Davies' initial run back in 2005. But the arrival of the 15th Doctor, I think their first episode is going to be on Christmas Day. Uh, it might be the perfect jumping on place for you because it's going to tell a completely new story. Uh, you know, because every few years the Doctor regenerates, revitalizing themselves into a new form that is still the Doctor, but with a fresh coat of paint. And that is not unlike the game we're going to be talking about first, which underwent a regeneration of its own. Uh, and that is how I am transitioning from Doctor Who to Super Mario RPG Remake. Um, so I think everyone is really, really excited for this. I remember the reaction when it was announced uh, at a direct. People lost their minds because we honestly didn't really think that we were ever going to get this game, like a let alone uh, even a remaster, let alone a remake. So uh, Super Mario RPG The Legend of the Seven Stars was a collaborative project between Square and Nintendo. Uh, developed and released for the Super Nintendo uh, in 1996. And it it was the first time it combined uh, Mario platforming elements, so like, you know, jumping and hitting blocks and things like that, with traditional JRPG elements. Uh, so it was a real mix of uh, Mario and RPGs. Uh, and, I mean, the game, for its time, was a real looker. It utilized 3D rendered graphics very similar to Donkey Kong Country uh, that looked amazing considering that it was released at the very tail end of the 16-bit era uh, when the PlayStation was already on the market. And since then, Super Mario RPG inspired many follow-ups, including uh, the Paper Mario series, the Mario & Luigi series, uh, 
that picked up on many of the gameplay elements, including the uh, uh, pressing buttons during uh, turn-based combat to get extra hits or to defend yourself, things like that. But the original Super Mario RPG was left behind on the Super Nintendo, barring an appearance on the Virtual Console, uh, which was understandable because it was a Square Nintendo Copro, uh, and they had a bit of a falling out in the Nintendo 64 era, which likely means that rights issues would have been a bit of a nightmare to sort out. But they did it, and now 30 years later, it is back. So, Caitlin, you were are playing uh, the Super Mario RPG remake, and just broadly... What do you think? Uh, well, broadly, it is very faithfully recreated. This is honestly, uh, it's obviously a remake in the sense that it's a new development. Uh, it's not developed by Square Enix. Um, it's developed by Art Piazza. So it is technically a new game, although it's really, I, I would say it feels more like a remaster because it is that faithful to the look and the style of the original. There's Almost nothing that's changed in terms of the stories, the maps, uh, the combat is largely the same. The characters are all there. There's no additional like uh, story quests or elements or mini games. Um, there's little. There's a few additions to combat um, and a few quality of life adjustments uh, uh, you know, to, to allow you to, you know, play the game in the 21st century. Um, but it is, it is very much, it is, it's going to be very just like a high definition version of the classic version that we all uh, know and love. And for some of us, including myself was our very first RPG. So it's, it's a, a little special that way, but, uh, so yeah, it has all the, the strengths and the weaknesses of the original game, just in a much nicer mostly well-performing package, although there are some some performance issues here or there that kind of mar the thing just a little bit, but it's still a very enjoyable, classic, nostalgia-filled experience. Performance issues on the Switch? My goodness. Yeah, there's some frame drops that uh, kind of, uh, I don't know, it, it will depend. Your mileage may vary. Um, I know some people aren't as sensitive to that kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. But it they're fairly noticeable to me. Not enough to like interfere with gameplay or really muck with the the overall experience. But they were noticeable when they happened. And mm -hmm. I mean, it doesn't look on its surface like it's a super graphically intense game. It's it's obviously uh, up-res, you know, the, 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 all of the assets are, you know, much nicer looking, but it's the same isometric style, uh, presentation. All the maps are the same, you know, it's not like they went in and massively updated or, or expanded the, your worldview. So it doesn't look like it should be a super performance intensive game, but it's also on the switch. So yeah, it's one of those things yeah. where I think the switch is probably just holding back games that could perform better. The thing about Super Mario RPG, and I do not mean this in a uh, negative way, it, it very much, it's an excellent choice for a baby's first RPG. Yeah. Not because it is simple, because actually it's not, um, but because the game has an element, like it has, it's a turn-based RPG, just like it's a, it's a Square Enix JRPG. But the additional elements, which we take for granted now, including button presses during the actual combat, uh, to like double up your hits or defend or things like that. That was a massive innovation at the time, which added an element of Mario-esque interactivity into the JRPG formula. So right off the bat, that's a great thing for 
uh, kids to get into RPGs because they're not just choosing menus. They're actually participating in the battle. Yeah, and that's that's uh, obviously here in this version as well. Although uh, if you played the original a lot, you might have to relearn timing. I had to sort of reteach myself with some of the moves when to hit the button press and whether that's the developers or if it's a lag issue with uh, the the um the joy cons or the pro controller i'm not sure but uh there was a, a little bit of a learning curve that i wasn't expecting given how much i played the original game but it's also been a while so it's mm. possible my memory is uh, a little bit chuffed um i will say though that uh those those Action elements are nice um, when you can pull them off or, or when you you know feel like the game didn't misinterpret when you hit the button. <laughs> but unfortunately, it's still it's a, it's a really easy game. Mm -hmm. And the original was really easy too, so this is faithful in that sense, but this version is even easier. Um, I do not remember having such an easy time with both regular enemies and bosses as I did in my playthrough here. Uh, sometimes bosses I could beat in a couple of, of uh, attacks, you know, a round or two of attacks. Uh, and I don't remember that being the case in the original. I remember having a harder time with it. Although I was younger, I'm an older, more experienced gamer now. But I don't know if it's really come down to that just as much as it's, it's just, an, it's an easy game. And some of the mm. additions to the combat system make things even easier. Um, so like now you can have uh, perfect timings where if you perfectly time the attack or the block, you will do additional damage to all enemies if you're attacking or you will take no damage oh. if you're blocking, um, which is nice, but also, you know, it, doing AOE damage on perfect strikes means you're going to knock out enemies that much faster. Um, there are triple moves. These are basically like your limit break sort of super moves that you can pull off with all three characters. So there's a variety of different moves depending on who's in the party. Um, and you build up a gauge by doing successful action commands, which puts what the game calls uh, the timing on attacks and, and blocks um, to do, uh, you know, like you can do a lot of damage to an enemy or you can uh, resurrect uh, and heal people or put up a shield, something like that, mm. um, which is nice. It's fun. It's 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 nice to have these team attacks because it's a small cast in this game, but a lovable cast. You have Mario and Peach and Bowser, of course, but you have uh, the new characters, Gino and Mallow, new to the original game, not to this version, obviously. Who have not been seen outside of Smash Brothers since, Which is a, it's a shame. Uh, Gino and Mallow are great characters, so, like, you know... I'd love to see more of them. Yeah, that's um, one of the problems, I guess, with Square co-developer. Square was the developer of it, so log I mean, they probably co-own the characters. So mm -hmm. it's a shame. Yeah. But hey, maybe they'll show up in future games, or at least their respective. Like Mallow's, you know, he, he, it, it's an interesting uh, is an interesting character, but also the world he comes from is an interesting addition to the well, the Mushroom Kingdom. Um, it'd be interesting to see that be developed in any kind of future Nintendo game. Yeah. Um, so some of the other things that are new, uh, there are difficulty, well, there is a difficulty selection. There's normal and there's breezy. Um, breezy obviously being easier than normal and normal is already too easy. So mm. I actually kind of question why, like, I think having difficulty options was a good idea, but it should have gone the other way. It should yeah, have been so we normal literally have, We literally have baby's first RPG. Yeah. Mode. 
Like I can't, uh, I mean, for, for young, for, for kids, maybe breezy is, a, it would be a good option. You know, if, if they've never played a game like this before and they're real young, mm. but then again, kids these days, you know, they play regular Mario games and, you know, I, I would think that they could take to this pretty easily too. So I feel like that was a miss. Like they should have gone normal and hard. There is, um, there's a post game boss challenge where you can fight some of the iconic bosses again and they are much harder and uh introduce e uh, extra gimmicks and that's nice but it's it's only a few bosses it's at the after the end of the game it's a little it's a little too late i think at that point mm -hmm. and they are meant to be very punishing for for the game itself so they're kind of like this is these are really they are super bosses they're meant to be super challenging for the game so it's not there's 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 a middle ground that they could have i think hit by having a harder difficulty mode throughout the entirety of the game instead of just a like six or seven i think uh at the end of the game uh, after you've beat everything and the weird thing too is like you get rewards from fighting those bosses that are like ultimate weapons for characters and it's like at this point, all you have to do is fight the other super bosses. You don't need these weapons to go back and beat the game again. So mm. it's just a little weird. Um, so, yeah, like, I don't know. It's one of those things where I knew I was going to be coming back to playing a game that I loved as a child, and I still love, um, but I'm much older now, and uh, I, I'm trying not to only look at the game through a, the lens of nostalgia. So I'm trying to look at the game as if like, well, what would I think? How would I interpret this if I had never played this game before? So, um, so yeah, like, you know, just keep that in mind if you are a fan of the original. Um, I mean, I still think it's a great game uh, mm -hmm. for what it is. Uh, the charm uh, is just, you know, off the charts with this game, uh, especially if you played any of like the, the, you know, more traditional Mario games, uh, uh, when you were younger, like it's just like all of the references and characters mm. and uh, the the fun, like the, you know, there's there's an element of platforming in this game because you have to move around the world and jump, and there are hidden chests to find and other things to do, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of fun that they had uh, both with the original game and also with this remake. Mm. Um, it's obviously a very simple story because it's a Mario game. You know, you, this is. Like every Mario story, <laughs> you start off rescuing the princess from Bowser, um, and it gets you know a little bit deeper than that, but you know only a little bit. It's a fairly short yeah. and sweet experience. Well, it Trojan the beginning of this game Trojan horses you into thinking that of course the you know going after Bowser is going to be the focus of this game, and you do you go after Bowser to rescue the princess, and then it expands into for this a much more expansive game that is still you know very much the classic Mario needs to search for stars uh, yeah. template and beat the uh, bad guys and, and save the, the world. Guys, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, that's sort of the story of this game is balancing adventure and fun rather than a deep narrative. And I mean, compared to Mario narratives up to this point, it is certainly the most expansive one that we had, uh, we had ever gotten because up to this point, the most expansive Mario game was well world. So we, we finally got a story starring Mario. And I mean, this was even in the days before Mario had a voice, which is actually interesting because there is no voice acting in this. Yeah. Um, and that's another interesting thing. So there's a handful of uh, full cinematics in this version to take the place of some of the cutscenes mm -hmm. um, that we see in the original version of the game. 
Um, so like, for instance, uh, when you meet Mallow for the first time, he's chasing this, uh, this, 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 uh, a croco thief like a you know like a dinosaur looking guy who's stolen some money from him that's a full-on cinematic in this version but it's entirely silent there's no voice acting none none of the characters well bowser has some voice acting he just has like some in Mm. some of the uh the triple moves that he's involved in in the game but otherwise, there's no voice acting. And it does kind of feel a little awkward because there's some of these somatics, they will have subtitles because characters are talking. Uh, they're taking the place of scenes mm-hmm. where there were dialogue boxes in the original game. So there's dialogue, but it's all very silent. And mm-hmm. I mean, um, it's true to the original in that sense, um, but it is kind of an interesting choice that they decided to go full cinematics for a handful not not a whole lot but a handful of scenes but yeah. decided not to do voice acting true and i mean i guess we're all programmed at this point to expect a wahoo occasionally from a mario game yeah and um i don't know like i guess it would have it would have been really cool too if like maybe because of the the news of um you know our our beloved voice of mario passing on his hat maybe this could have been the last game that he could have voiced the character and that would have been kind of a nice way to send off uh his work on the character but you know it's it is what it is it's uh uh it's not a um it's not a you know a huge issue it's just kind of a little weird whenever those Mm. cutscenes come up and you're like it's mime time (laughs) yes it sounds like it is an exceedingly faithful remake in some ways in almost every way it is like and i think that's part of the reason why you mentioned it's so it's so easy especially with the new uh triple moves and things it's it's a real shame because it sounds like they maybe i'm wrong but it doesn't sound like they rebalanced the combat to uh work with those mechanics so those mechanics instead of adding to the game subtract to it because it just makes it too easy i i would be surprised if they rebalanced anything um even even when I was not hitting perfect attacks and thus getting the AOE damage, mm-hmm. I still felt like I was taking enemies out faster than I would have expected. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. But, like, you know, th- this is not a game that you're going to play to be challenged. If you've <laughs> played the original, you know exactly what you're getting into. This is a game that you're going to want to play because... It was for, you know, if it's like me, it was a part of your childhood. It was a formative part of your experience with RPGs. And this is a much prettier version of the game that you can play on a modern console or a console that is available in modern times, if not a modern console. Mm. Um, (laughs) That, you know, by virtue of being released on the Switch, will be available for a while as opposed to, you know, the SNES version, uh, which, you know, once you got rid of your. SNES, and if you don't have access to virtual console, you can't play it. So in a sense of like preserving the original version, the original kind of way that you experience the game, it's it's an it's they did a good job, I think. Because it's yeah. just it's basically just, you know, it's a prettier version of the original game that is otherwise to a fault sometimes faithful to the original experience. Yeah, and this game is for me as well, it is a it's an RPG that I played a lot of and I loved uh, when it was on the Super Nintendo because it's a really good game. Uh, it it did something which up to that point no other game did, which it, it, it in my opinion, flawlessly, especially for the year it was created, uh, it, it merged two completely different genres together in a way that had never been done before. 
uh, platforming and RPGs. And in doing so, uh, set the stage for Mario games well into the future uh, in terms of characterization. I mean, this is the first time that Bowser has actually been characterized. Uh, This is the first time Peach has been characterized, aside from being a damsel in distress. So a lot of what this game brought to the party in terms of the characterizations, as minimal as they were, uh, continued onward from there and impacted all Mario platformers from that point moving forward, especially Bowser, I think. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of my favorite things about this game is that Bowser becomes a party member and actually works with Mario for a little bit. Like, you know, I always thought that was, I, I remember thinking that was really cool when I first played the original. I was like, oh, wait, but Bowser's the bad guy. Mm. Why is he on my team? But, oh, this is kind of cool. And like, maybe he and Mario can kind of be friends and not quite, you know, whatever. Um, so yeah. They'll go karting together at some point, maybe. But that's still their rivals when you're in Mario Kart. Like, Oh, yeah. So. Um, the game is extraordinarily charming. At least the original was. I'm, I'm speaking of my knowledge of the original because I played through it quite a few times. Uh, it's a ridiculously charming game. Like you said, it's very funny in places. There are so many references. Like there are jokes where if you go to the inn at one point, Link is sleeping in one of the beds, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, hilarious. Uh, and the visual style was always something that really caught my eye about this game because for the Super Nintendo, it was a looker. Um, and an interesting thing that they did with this game is like you said, it's it's very much an HD, it's upgraded visuals, but they have, in to my eye, they have successfully merged the graphic style of the original with the slightly super deformed characters that Squaresoft was so well known for with the modern day character designs of Mario Bowser and the rest. Uh, I think they did a really, really nice job of you look at it and it looks like it, it, it looks like a modern game, but it still looks like the original. I think they've done a really good, a really great job of uh, merging those two styles. Yeah, it looks beautiful. Um, and it's nice to see, uh, sort of, you know, like you mentioned, the updated sort of character models, but still fitting into the isometric world, still feeling like they belong there, but they have that much more sort of like a, you know, even modern sort of touch to them, even in the uh, the way that Mario moves through the the world as you're, you're you know, navigating the world has a, 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 you know, feels more like, you know, you could see that exact same movement style and animation in the, uh, the mainline uh, Mario games, you know, mm. Mario Odyssey, you know, Mario, uh, uh, whatever, whatever the next 3D full on Mario game is going to be called. Um, and that extends to, to some of the, the, uh, the other elements of the game, like the music has been completely redone by Yokoshi Mimura. Um, it, it, obviously, this is one of those games that you think about when you think about Shimamura's music and it's, it's beautiful. Uh, I love everything that they've done to, you know, you know, uh, uh, modernize the synths and, uh, other things that she does. Like, um, there's a uh, key shifts that happen in the new versions of a lot of the music to sort of, uh, you throw a little variation. Cause you know, b- back in the day, SNES music, hmm. uh, was not, uh, the loops were short by virtue of how much space they had to work with on the cartridges. So uh, they were usually much shorter loops and she does, you know, some key shifts or some instrumentation changes in order to uh, extend the, the, the track a little bit and make it sound a little bit more like a, a you know, modern track as opposed to just, Oh, 
a straight up, uh, you know, update the the synths and just do the same uh, old melody. Although if you do want the original experience, you can select the original music from the menu at any time and go back to the SNES soundscape, which is also nice. Mm-hmm. So that's a, I, I like, I appreciate when games do that. I know Star Ocean 2 uh, R also did the same thing uh, recently, which was, you know, love, love to see that. Because um, sometimes, sometimes the original just, you know, hits a little bit different, or you just really remember that original soundscape uh, from, your, you know, your original time playing the game. So it's nice to have the option. It is. It's fascinating how, I mean, it's not, it, it's fairly obvious. We, we've, we've been on Rhythm Encounter many times. It's music hits the ear in a certain way that evokes a certain level of nostalgia or feelings. And just hearing the same song doesn't necessarily trigger that same level of nostalgia. But the second that you hear the original, it does. Like the like, in a weird way, the original MIDI versions of many Final Fantasy tracks have much more emotional resonance for me than like fully orchestrated versions of them. Mm-hmm. So it's nice that they give that option so people can play the game and still get those feelings without thinking, oh, that's a weird choice. That's interesting. It just feels like, well, coming home in a weird way. Um, Aside from all of that, like, I mean, the game, one of the reasons I love the graphic style of this game is because it is extremely expressive, especially Bowser. Bowser is, uh, at points, is crying and is, uh, the graphic style, does it pull that, does it pull that off? Because again, it's, Oh, he cries. Oh, he and cries. It's, Good. It, it's the exact same, uh, you know, updated graphic Y, but it's the exact same animation of the 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 uh, the tears sort of yo yoing out of his <laughs> out of his eyes when he cries. Yeah, that's that's there. And I was like, ah, I, I, I was the first time I saw that. I was like, yes, he's still crying. Good. Um, here's a question that is interesting. If this game is a fairly significant success, and I really hope it is because it's a very good game, um, would you think that Nintendo should, do you think that they should try to make a Super Mario RPG 2? Not like a Paper Mario or a Mario and Luigi, like seriously, a sequel to this game. I think the child in me wants them to, definitely. The Mm -hmm. adult in me is obviously a little concerned about make sure they don't f*** it up. Hmm. Because... With a game this old and with the pedigree it has and the love that the community has for it, you know, that could be really easy. But no, yeah, I would love to see uh, a sequel. I would love to, you know, have a reason to have the original characters back in the party, maybe a few additional party members, because it's it's interesting. Five is a five's kind of a weird number for a, you know, full party. Like, you know, you normally you might have like more like six carry that you know round it out have it be even or something like that mm-hmm. um so i don't know like maybe toad or yoshi could be full party members in a in a future sequel but uh yeah i i would like it i just i wonder like how that would work would they would they try to collaborate with square enix again um to really capture the magic or would they would they do it in house um and like you know are we talking would it be a a sequel as in from the original story or would it be a spiritual sequel that is the same sort of concept, but a fresh story that isn't connected to the original game and a lot of potential either way there. Um, But Mm. hopefully, yeah, I mean like uh, it'd be interesting to see how the game performs sales wise and whether or not that encourages Nintendo to 
to do something like this again. Because there is a bit of a gap here. Uh, the dream of Alpha Dream is unfortunately uh, over because Alpha Dream closed down. So the last, the last uh, Mario and Luigi original Mario and Luigi game that got released was uh, Paper Jam, I think, like almost almost a decade ago now. And there were some re-releases of Superstar Saga and Bowser's Inside Story, but so the Mario and Luigi series is. I don't want to say it's dead, but it's it's very much on the back burner. The last Paper Mario game was fine, apparently. It was okay. It didn't really hit anything out of the park. It felt a little bit tired. So this might be a really interesting way to jumpstart new interest in a Mario RPG series. It could. I'm not saying it will, but it could. Yeah, and I guess we'll just have to see down the line... Uh what Nintendo wants to do with it. Yeah. Also, we are getting the uh, Thousand Year Door remake next year. Mm -hmm. So it's not like Mario RPGs are dead. Uh, We're just not seemingly getting any new ones. We're getting remakes and remasters. But hopefully, I mean, there's a lot of fun in these games. And because of the, you know, the the charming world and the the charm of the Mario uh, characters, there's a lot to explore here in a very fun way that makes a JRPG that's accessible to everyone. Like I would argue that Paper Mario and the Mario and Luigi series, very much like Super Mario RPG, are great entry points for kids who are looking, you know, parents of parents of children who they want to get into RPGs. So hopefully it continues. Yeah, I would I would like to see more. Obviously, I, I would have loved a sequel to this game back when I was, uh, God, eleven years old. I guess <laughs> when I first played it. Um, 1996, it came out. Yeah, so 11. Um, and I would like, you know, obviously it'd be great to have, I, I think one of the the strengths of Mario as a, not just a character, but an IP for Nintendo is the way in which they've obviously been very open to uh, putting him in lots of different genres. It's not mm. just the original platformers. We we have sports games, we have racing games, we have RPGs, we have puzzle games. Like there's there's seemingly no end to you know the genre shifting that Mario can engage in. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't see why he can't continue to be a star in RPGs. So, you know, I guess it just depends on like, you know, uh how how much is nintendo going to listen to the fan base when we say we really do like rpgs I, you know i know i know that like that's been maybe a surprise to other developers in the recent past and maybe certain games that came out this year that were extreme hits can demonstrate that rpgs as a genre are still very popular but it's just going to be a question of you know does nintendo listen and do they mm-hmm. want to develop more rpgs yeah it's fascinating to me that mario has i mean mario since he was released had this but is in many ways a modern day iteration of mickey mouse or uh goofy or these like classic cartoon characters in the sense that mario exists in an extraordinarily elastic reality where whatever scenario they put mario in it just makes sense like Mm -hmm. continuity is not there like with classic cartoons one week mario one week uh mickey mouse would be like on a on an RV trip with Goofy and Donald, then the next tr- the next week they would be cleaning a clock together. Or Goofy would have all of these shorts about like how to learn how to ski, how to play football. How to like it, there's an elasticity to the reality that is extraordinarily useful for Nintendo that they can just throw them into anything, and it sort of works. 
including a theme park now, which again, there's another Mar- there's another uh, Mickey uh, comparison. I kind of want to visit that park. I don't know. It looks, I don't know. I, I'd like to see it for myself. Super Mario World or Super Mario. What's the, what's the park called? Does anyone remember? I don't know. It's a uh, universal super, super Nintendo world. That's it. Super Nintendo world. It looks fun. Anyway, uh, well, thank you, Caitlin, for chatting with me about a game from my youth as well that I have a tremendous amount of nostalgia for, um, and that technically had a lot of spinoffs that were semi-related in terms of mechanics, but not necessarily in terms of actual uh, graphic style or uh, storytelling. But let's move on now to a series that is very, very popular, has been super popular in the last few years, and which has explored a number of different gameplay styles as well, and that is Persona 5. So uh, Persona 5 was released uh, by Atlas back in 2017, I think. That's right. And, yeah, and then uh, it you know, it, it got great reviews, everyone loved it, and then they released an expanded version of it, Persona 5 Royal, in 2020. Uh, and then from there, we got Persona 5 Strikers, which was uh, a Muso game, but featuring the Persona 5 characters. And they keep releasing Persona 5 characters uh, starring the Phantom Thieves. Uh, and the most recent one got released uh, a few weeks ago, and it is Persona 5 Tactica. And this is an SRPG that features them. Uh, it's a little different from a lot of SRPGs that you might expect. It Instead of pulling from, like, I don't know, the Fire Emblem style, it very much pulls from the... Uh, I guess the modern one would be the... Uh, it's very similar to Mario Rabbids is yeah, the Mario closest Rabbids. comparison, yeah. Which is yeah. itself derived from XCOM, but um, mm-hmm. this is much more similar to Mario Rabbids. <laughs> yeah. And unlike other uh, Persona games that, at least Persona 5 games, which have their own very, very specific art style, which is beloved, this one uh, moves the characters, these well-known characters, into a much more super-deformed style, a little bit more on the lines of classic RPGs, and from uh, some other Persona spinoffs like uh, Persona Q. Yeah, it's a little bit... Um, it's kind of a middle ground between like the original, more anime, typical anime proportion graphics, and then the super-deformed graphics that you get in like Persona Q2. Mm-hmm. So it's like a bit halfway between those. They kind of have elongated but exaggerated proportions um they look kind of stubby (laughs) Um, i guess is how i put it um it's an interesting art style um you know i don't know i think the super deformed art style is like a very well understood iterated upon art style in uh, japanese games and media in general um and it's nice they tried to do something different but it just has a little bit of a weird um you know, it's like growing pains, I guess you would say, because a lot mm-hmm. of games don't really adopt the style. There's definitely some shots or portraits that when you look at them, they don't really make sense proportionally. <laughs> um, stuff like that. There's a really famous one that's been going around. That's a um, that's a, a, one of the portraits of. Um, oh, my God. Now I'm blanking on her name. Um, Futaba. And like her arm, <laughs> like it, her arm is in a position that there's no way it could be in. But um, otherwise, I mean, I think the art style, it's definitely has a unique, it gives the game a very unique feel mm. um, because they try to do something different with it. So is it, is the art style throughout the entire game or is it only when they're in dream? No, it's the entire game. Um, okay. But the That's entire game choice. takes place within a kind of metaverse. So there is no real like 
outside of it. And then mm-hmm. even when there are like cutscenes or flashbacks to like a character's backstory or something like that, it's all presented in the same visual style. I am not a, I have not played Persona 5. I have it. It's been on my backlog forever. And it's one of those games that I'm a little bit afraid to play because I feel like when I play it, I'm going to be like, ah, crap, here's my next four months playing the net, playing all the Persona games. Um, what, what's your uh, history with the Persona series, uh, specifically with Persona 5? Yeah, so um, I played Persona 5 when it came out. Um, you know, my first experience with Persona uh, was with Persona 4 Golden on the Vita. And then after that, I went back and played Persona 3. Um, and then I played Persona 5 when it came out. Um, I played some of Strikers. I played Royal. I played Persona Q 1 and 2. Um, so with the modern era of persona, I have a pretty, um, good experience, you know, (laughs) as far as that goes. Um, so, and I'm a fan, you know, of the games. Um, I do think that, uh, you know, when I first played persona five, I loved it. I thought it was great. Um, there were definitely some issues that I had with it, um, as far as like the themes and some of the things that the places the story goes. I think there's a lot of parts where Persona 5 has like a message that it wants to send, but then it kind of undercuts that message. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Royal kind of continued that same trend. <laughs> you know, I didn't, Royal would have been a chance to go back and fix some of those things and it doesn't really, and it kind of adds. Doubles down in many cases. Yeah. 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 Um, though some of the characters they add in Royal are interesting. Um, but that's something I, I, again, I have not played Royal or the original Persona 5 or the spinoffs, but from what I understand it, obviously I'm immersed in this world. It seems like the characters and the scenarios that were introduced in Persona 5 Royal tend to be a bit ignored by the spinoffs uh, that mm-hmm. followed it in a weird way, considering that it seems to be the default. It's considered to be the default way to play Persona 5 now. Yeah, um, and that's true of the other spinoffs, so Persona Q2 and Persona Strikers, and then that's also true of this game. So, um, you know, for some of them, it makes sense, you know, Persona Q2 um, came out before Royal, Uh, Persona 5 Strikers was in development prior to, or at the same, I think part of their development was concurrent, Mm -hmm. and um, came out in Japan earlier than it did here in the West. So I think it might've actually come out in Japan before Royal, but I'm not sure about that. Um, so there's like some like, you know, technical or practical reasons why those games didn't really touch on anything in Royal, which I think is fine. You know, that makes sense. Um, you know, maybe they couldn't accommodate some of those things into the development of the game. Uh, but Tactica, you know, is coming out in from everything I can understand. The development was done after Royal. <laughs> so, well, I mean, would, so at this point it would sort of have to be. Yeah, except that um, there's no royal content in the base game. So Mm. the only, there is royal content, but that's day one DLC. Well, maybe that's why. Yeah, and um, it's very strange. I think that's a very strange choice. Um, You know, I didn't receive the the DLC, the royal DLC, so I couldn't review it. But um, yeah, I think it's a very strange choice to just have like major characters that people who especially if you're playing like Tactica on Xbox or on Switch or PC, you know, if you've played Persona 5 on those platforms as well, you that's the story that you know and you know those characters. And for them to not be in this version of the game unless you buy the DLC is a very strange choice. Well, Persona does have a 
I would say, a rich tradition of some pretty bizarre spinoffs, including some spinoffs that go into the SRPGs, into dance rhythm spinoffs, things like that. Uh, how does this game build on that? Yeah, so um, what's interesting about this game is that it doesn't build at all on anything that Atlas has done before in the genre, which I was very surprised by. So Atlas has a few different um, strategy RPG series, you know, like uh, going back all the way to the NES, you've got stuff like Majin Tensei or, um, you know, on the DS and 3DS, you have the Devil Survivor games. So yeah, this is not a new genre for them. No, it's not a new genre for them. And, um, you know, when Tactica was announced, but there wasn't very much shown, I thought that maybe some more of those elements would come in. And um, there, there's a few things that are somewhat similar to maybe Devil Survivor, and we can get into that. But for the most part, it, the basic foundations of this game do not draw at all from anything Atlas has done previously as far as strategy RPGs go. Mm-hmm. It is very, very um, based on the foundation set by... Um, the XCOM reboot um, that Fraxis made in like 2012 and then that Mario Rabbids then picked up from. Um, and uh, it's it's cover-based. Um, mm. Ranged uh, attacks with like guns are a huge part of the combat. Um, and you have a very small team size with only three characters on field at once. I don't mean this in a negative way, but that reboot, has a lot to answer for like (laughs) it it's gameplay design inspired so much that came after it from so many different genres and i don't mean that in a bad way either when i say it has a lot to answer for i don't mean that it should be uh put on trial but yeah it it, that really set the stage for a lot of games that came off after it yeah that's true that's very true um and you know there's there's ways in which i think uh, you know the new XCOM games or the games that are inspired by it, you know, they take that and they do a lot with it. Um, whereas this game is very much following the trend uh, that Mario Rabbids set where you're taking that base um, foundation and then simplifying it down. Mm. Um, so there's no, there's no like larger strategy simulation layer like you have in XCOM. So it's just like Mario Rabbids where it's only the, you know, linear progression of missions Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, your development of characters is very, um, you know, streamlined and they have like their skill tree and that's what you can, you know, put points into and develop, but you don't really have a lot of control over what the characters do outside of that. Now, there's some ways. Um, one interesting thing that this game does is that it allows for all characters to swap personas. So they're not relegated to only their persona. Hmm. Um, they can also equip an additional persona. Um, but these are mostly used for, so you can get like active skills that you can use like directly in battle from those. Um, but it's mostly geared towards acquiring passive skills through those personas and you can only equip, um, one additional persona. Um, so it, that does allow for a little bit of customization with the characters and setups, but it's pretty limited. It's something that you said in the review, which was of tremendous interest to me, is, yeah, this game does feature your The Phantom Thieves. It features the cast of Persona 5 uh, that we, well, we've, that everyone has come to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, in a weird way, it does not feel like they're the focus of the game. The, new, the focus of the game seems to be on some of the new characters, and it's almost incidental that they're there. 
Yes. So uh, they, yeah, I, uh, they basically do the grunt work. <laughs> so the story is very much about the, the new characters, specifically um, the character Toshiro Kasukabe, who is like a, he's a politician. Um, he is um, supposedly like next in line to be prime minister of Japan. And mm-hmm. um, he goes missing uh, right before the events of the game start. And then the Phantom Thieves basically enter um, a metaverse that's created like based in his mind, essentially. Um, so the story is very focused around him. And then another character who appears in his metaverse named Arena. Um, and I don't really want to, you know, there's there's connections, obviously, to him and and yeah. people in real life and stuff. I don't want to get too much into spoilers or anything, but... Um, it's mainly based around him and then Arena and then his relationship to other people in his life um, mm. who are the the uh, the tyrants that control each kingdom in the game. Um, so they're all a, a, a family member or somebody, some figure in his life that has influence over him. Symbolism. So basically the Phantom Thieves are sort of being used as... Uh devices to move the plot forward rather than the game being specifically about them and their journey. Exactly. Yeah. So they, they, um, you know, enter his metaverse and then they help him, um, kind of overcome, um, his internal struggles with these, you know, authority figures in his life. Um, so they do all the fighting, but, um, you know, it's mostly about his personal development. In his personal development, it seems like one of the main themes about the metaverse that you enter is revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first, the first one you go into is involved is a a pastiche of the French Revolution, essentially. Yes. Yes. Um, and this was something that I I very much enjoy about your reviews is that you do tend to give a little bit of I guess historical context to the framing, and you do hear, you talk a little bit about. Uh, the game slightly misses the point. It misses its own point in many cases uh, because the central the central focus is on revolution. Uh, and unfortunately, that revolution seems to be based around a single character rather than a collective struggle. Uh, right. do, you f- do you feel like this actively hurt the impact of the story and hurt the game overall as a result? Yeah, um, I, I would say so. Yeah, I think it did. Um, I think that the core story about Toshiro is actually very interesting. Um, you know, he's a pretty, he's a very interesting character. Um, he's kind of a, a, not the kind of traditional character that you would see in Persona. So there's a lot of, you know, a lot of people online like to say that I would like to see a Persona with adult characters. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of them exploring that because the story is so based around him. He Say, Ben, have you heard the good word about Yakuza like a dragon? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yes, yes. Like a dragon definitely takes that idea and runs with it. Um, but yeah, so for in a persona context, like it is a story like he he has adult problems. You know, these are like uh, his relationships with other adults and how that affects him. And so that part of the story I thought was actually really strong. The the personal connection and his development as a character and character growth um, is all really well done. Um, but where it kind of uh, fails to hit the mark is with the theme. So um, yeah, the theme of revolution, I just don't think it makes a lot of sense applied to a story like this because mm. it, you know, there you're not really doing a lot of revolutionary work <laughs> in, in the game. <laughs> Um, because it's so much about helping 
this single character. And at the beginning of the game, there are a lot of points where because they don't really understand the context of the world that they're in or the metaverse, um, there's a lot of points where you are like strategizing and, and taking out certain um, uh, locations to weaken uh, Marie, the first villain's, um, you know, foothold in the area and everything like that. And, and mm. that gives a little bit of context to what you're doing. and makes a lot of sense. But as you get to the further kingdoms, things become a lot more abstract and a lot more metaphorical um, and entirely based around Toshiro's life and past. And the problem with that is that there's not really a lot of context or meaning behind what you're actually doing as the Phantom Thieves, because it's all just like a excuse to have him have, uh, you know, mem- pull up some memories and then reckon with his past. Um, mm-hmm. And so it, that's a twofold problem. One, there's not really a lot of context for the battles. They don't have any kind of sense of place because a lot of them take place in like a abstract kind of abyss floating in the void <laughs> kind of thing, um, which, you know, most uh, strategy RPGs, you know, the maps are very memorable and the context around each battle can be, you know, memorable or interesting. Um, whereas in this case, it's you really don't get that because it's so much focused on this internal struggle of this one character. And mm. then because, you know, you there's a lot of points where you're there's these characters called citizens and they kind of have a similar design to Morgana. Um, but they're like, you know, they're not real people. Right. They're they all kind of have this like similar same design and they're the ones being oppressed by the tyrant figures. And it's really hard to feel any kind of connection to this because it's so it's so artificial. Mm-hmm. Um, like you don't really feel connected to their struggle because you know that they're they're fabrications inside of his mind. They're not real people that are suffering under oppression. And then um, you know it it just doesn't really connect to any of the the like real world examples of revolution that they want to use. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that it just doesn't make a lot of sense to pull from those things and then use them only aesthetically. It seems like another place they 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 missed the revolution was in the gameplay, uh, which, <laughs> based on what you were saying and um, and reading your review, which incidentally the review will be included in the show notes, um, it seems like they, like you mentioned before, they really leaned into the XCOM reboot, the Mario plus Rabbids Kingdom Battle style but almost even slightly more simplistic as there's only three characters that you can use at a time, which really limits the scale of these battles, I would imagine. Yes, it very much does. Most Especially of when you're considering that these are supposed to be, like, if, if you're setting it in the French Revolution, these are supposed to be massive historical uh, sweeping epics. And mm-hmm. you can't really do that when you have three characters. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a, a big problem with it. You don't get the sense of scale that you would expect in a game that's about revolution. Yeah, it seems like there are a bunch of skirmishes rather than battles when you have that few characters. Exactly, exactly. And um, that, you know, leads into some problems with the gameplay as well. Um, it's, it's very, so even compared to something like the XCOM reboots, it's very simplified. So you're... Um, you know, one issue is the cover mechanics. So there's like, you know, half cover and full cover. And as long as you're behind cover, um, even if you're not behind cover in the right direction, um, you will get reduced damage from ranged attacks. So uh, like a character can flank you and be on the opposite side of the cover that you're behind and shoot you and you still would resist (laughs) the damage, Um, which is just it makes the game very easy. 
Um, and then you, you know, there's also the Im implementation of the once more system from Persona, where if you hit an enemy's weakness, or in this case, down an enemy, then you get an additional turn. Um, oh, so and, you can just wipe, if you're powerful enough, you can just wipe out everyone very quickly. Yes, yes. Um, so it's very easy to set up um, downing an enemy. And then once you do that, usually that will snowball and you can down a lot more enemies, which means that you get a, a lot of turn, extra turns. Um, and the enemies can also get once mores off of you, but because of the way the cover mechanics works, you're going to almost always be in cover. And the game is so focused on range combat from the enemies that, uh, it's very rare for them to get you knocked down and get an extra turn, but it's very easy for you to get an extra turn. So that probably reduces the, uh, what I would argue is the strength of this kind of SRPG, which is the move counter move uh, mechanic, yes. which is you you set yourself up the the opposite side counters in some way. If you can just go again, you instantly get two steps ahead of the other side. They are they're struggling to catch up at that point. Yes, and what further exacerbates this is that they implemented like the all out attack system, mm -hmm. um, where if you but in this case if you form like a triangle formation around mm -hmm. a downed enemy then you can do uh, a large amount of damage to any enemy that's within that formation. <laughs> so uh, basically a lot of what the game boils down to is downing enemies, getting the extra turns, getting your characters into formation around a very large group of enemies, and then wiping them out all out with one attack. <laughs> um, which is interesting in theory, and actually there is, so there are side quests in the game, and these side quests basically function as like battle puzzles, where you only have a single turn and the goal is to wipe out all the enemies and the map in one turn. So those are actually very difficult because you have to get like the perfect formation around all the enemies and do an all-out attack. Um, but the main game doesn't ever require that level, you know, it doesn't ever limit you that much. Hmm. So it just becomes a breeze <laughs> because <laughs> those mechanics are so powerful for the player and the enemy can't make use of them. Okay. Outside of the gameplay, just because it's a Persona game and they tend to be famous for this, how's the soundtrack? The uh, soundtrack is actually really good. Uh, I think it's the best part of the game. Um, you have a lot of new arrangements of Persona 5 tracks and then also new tracks, um, including some new vocal tracks, which are really good. Um, you know, I think that like was the highlight of the game for me um, was the new music. Well, that's good at the very least. Uh, if we got some new some new tunes from it mm -hmm. um okay ignoring everything else you gave the game a 75 so mm -hmm. you did not dislike this game no no i i think that like the basic you know it's polished the basic mechanics are pretty solid and i do really think that the story is quite interesting um you know a lot of the other persona 5 spinoffs have gotten criticism because they feel like a like a um after school special kind of feel to them like oh the characters are here but they're being goofy and the story doesn't really have a lot of weight to it um and it doesn't really feel like anything is really happening of consequence right and mm. this game definitely even though the the phantom thieves themselves don't get a lot of character development and they kind of feel along for the ride the story itself is very interesting and um it goes to some interesting places and uh, the character development for the new characters, I thought was really well done. So um, I think the story is definitely like the the reason to play it. Um, yeah. So if you're a fan of Persona 5, you probably would enjoy this on a certain level. Yes, I think so. I think so. And the characters, because the, the setting is more serious, 
Um, even though the Phantom Thieves like aren't super, super integral um, to the plot or character development, they aren't like flanderized where they're just boiled down to like one or two tropes. And um, that's that's all they get. Instead, they are more like, you know, fully featured characters that you remember from Persona 5. And they react to some of the darker events the way you would expect them to. And they relate to the new characters if their struggles that they face and mm-hmm. that the, the fan of these face before are similar. So there are some really nice like character moments in there where you get um, like, for example, Futaba relating to uh, Toshiro because of their relationship with their mothers, things like that. Um, so there's a lot of like fan service in a good way um, for the characters. And you do get to see them like behaving as you would expect them to. Uh, they just don't, it just doesn't give them a lot of character development or room to grow. Hmm. Um, but it is interesting, uh, the actual story. And um, it's more time spent with characters that you probably already love. So Okay. Well, I guess my final question for you is, despite the fact that this was not as good as you necessarily hoped, did it make you even more excited for the eventual word coming of Persona 6? Yeah, I think it does, um, mostly because of the of how they um, went with the story in this case, like making it a more adult story um, with some darker themes that are handled pretty well. Um, I think if if they're if this kind of is indicative of what the Persona team now is looking to do in the future, then I think you could have something really special there. Um, you know, I think Toshiro would make like an excellent uh, confidant in mm. like a Persona game. So if they if they followed this template for side characters in the next Persona, I think you'd have some of the best side characters you've ever seen in this series. Um, and it shows that they still have like those storytelling chops. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I hope that they continue to build off of what Atlas has done in the past with mechanics and gameplay rather than looking too much towards other games, which I think was the main problem uh, yeah. with Tactica's gameplay. Yeah. Well, uh, before we move on uh, to closing it out, I just wanted to uh, bring up a bit of a discussion question that caught my eye a few weeks ago. So a few weeks ago in the RPG fan Slack, uh, Dom asked everyone a question just to get some conversation going. Uh, and it really caught my attention. And the question was about redemption arcs of video games. So there is a, I don't want to call it a business model because I don't think any business necessarily wants this to happen, but games like let's, Cyberpunk 2077 or No Man's Sky, which were released in a certain state, whether or not they were buggy or not fun or they had uh, poor gameplay or something like major, major games that get released broken in some way. And then over the next year or so, they get a slow release of major updates and improvements. And eventually those games get better and better and better. Uh, However, does this excuse the initial overpromising and underdelivering that we see at their launch? And how do we reconcile the uh, marketing missteps with the efforts that the studios take to fulfill the original visions? So, I mean, Caitlin, I know that you specifically have a very, very deep relationship with a game that probably has one of the most uh, famous redemption arcs in history, which is Final Fantasy XIV. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's I when you told us about this question before we started recording. That was the first thing I thought of. And I was like, yeah, well, of course I'm going to bring up 14 because 14 <laughs> is a great example of how you 
uh, come back from that because honestly, Square Enix could have just scrapped 14 when 1.0 flopped. They could have just said, nope, we're not doing it. And I don't think they would have been entirely uh, not just unjustified in doing that. Mm. Um, but I'm glad they didn't because obviously 14 today is a fantastic MMO. It deserves all the awards it gets, all the praise. And it wouldn't have been possible if they hadn't uh, come back. So like, I think this is a very good question because I think it's it's a difficult question to have a definitive like it's I think it's hard to come down 100% one way or the other like there's not mm. a good like absolutely it excuses it or it never excuses it I think it's a nuanced answer because obviously games like 14 even games like No Man's Sky and even games like Cyberpunk like they are in a good place now and we enjoy them now and depend you know you don't have to like all of them, but I think for the people who do, there are people who are very much grateful and happy that they had that chance to correct the mistakes at launch and to continue to improve the game and get it to the place where it is now, because where it is now is great. But at the same time, I don't think we can ignore what led to what the road that led to them to get to that point and the way that the games initially launched. We mm. can't excuse it just because they eventually fixed the game and got it into a good place, particularly with Cyberpunk. I think out of the three games we, we've mentioned here, I think Cyberpunk is the most egregious, even though I like the game. I enjoyed my playthrough. I want to play Phantom Liberty. I, I've been having a lot of time, fun time watching streamers play Phantom Liberty. Mm-hmm. But because of the way, because of the hype machine that CD Projekt Red built up, with this game and not entirely under their entire, their whole control. Part of it was just the media machine and, and, you know, building up hype, but they did a lot of the damage themselves with the way they built the game up. And then it was unfinished. It Mm. was not finished. And on the one hand, that's going to be a thing going forward because of the way AAA gaming is just completely unsustainable and is going we're going to f- see more games like that where they you know, had a deadline, they released an unfinished game, and they have to fix it or try to fix it if they can uh, with post-release patches. That's a reality of AAA gaming, but it shouldn't be something that we just excuse and say, well, mm-hmm. that's the way things are these days. That's That's what we live with. I think it's a lot of developers are going to fall back to that. They're going to look to No Man's Sky and Cyberpunk and say, well it worked for them so if if we had to cut some corners to release the game on time we'll fix it in post and i'm afraid that that will become the triple a game space of the future is a essentially what is kind of like a um early access experience without developers you know outright saying it's early access and having that expectation out there at the begin at the forefront and then they'll just they'll continue to patch it and they'll fix it and eventually it will get into a space, a place where maybe it was originally promised to be at launch. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we have to we have to continue to be cognizant of that and to call them on it and to recognize that that's a problem. It's endemic to the, the like I said, it's endemic to the, the, the way AAA gaming is going and how it's probably going to keep going into the future. But it doesn't mean that we can't enjoy the uh, <laughs> the product down the line once it's in a 
good spot. I didn't play Cyberpunk tw- uh, until after it had gotten a lot of its major patches. It was in a much better place when I played it. If I had played it at launch, mm. um, who knows if I would have wanted to keep it with it. So there's an mm-hmm. advantage to me coming into the game after it's had time to fully marinate and <laughs> you know work out the kinks. Um, and I think you know that's fine. Like if you play a game like Final Fantasy fourteen and you're playing it today and you enjoy it, that's great. And I think that those games should continue to exist for the people who want to play them and if they're profitable and whatnot, all that, all that good stuff. But like you know, I will be the first person to say, yeah, one sucked, and mm-hmm. fourteen realistically, you know, in another you know life probably wouldn't have even continued to exist and maybe it shouldn't have continued to exist considering how poorly uh, 1.0 flopped. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, yeah, I think it's a, it's a tightrope where you have to sort of always be, you always have to be aware of the reality that caused the initial launch to be so bad while still, you know, saying, okay, well, yeah, they can, they can try to improve it and maybe eventually it'll get to there. I just I worry that we will get to that point where we we we're so used to it because everyone does it that that's just going to become the way the games are in the future at least AAA yeah. games are in the future. And like I guess to close out my comments I'll say that I do like early access as a as a model for games. Obviously Baldur's Gate 3 is a huge success story of how early access can can you know lead you to develop a 1.0 yeah. launch of a game that is Hades. Yeah. That's another example. Yeah. yeah. So like there's value in that when that's the initial intent to be to uh, for the get-go and you are upfront and transparent about it and everyone knows it. It's the it's the the AAA big name developers hmm. where they don't they aren't upfront because they think that this is a golden goose that will just you know all we have to do is press X to make assets, make game, develop, profit, you know, sell lots of copies, be praised, win game of the year, the, the game awards, and then they're good. And the, the industry is just not, it's not moving in that direction. So like, I just, my, my concern is that we will start to get to the point where, because everyone does it, it's okay when people, when it happens, and we'll just start forgetting that, you know, we need to actually kind of like, you know, push knock on the door of the big name developers and say yeah you kind of fucked up you know you kind of fucked up and and thank you please fix it but recognize you fucked up and try not to fuck up again in the next one mm-hmm. so yeah ben what do you think yeah um i think i have a little bit of a different take from caitlin on this um just because i think that i'm not too worried about um like your typical triple a games taking this model um simply because I think most of the really large publishers, and especially when it's a developer that they own or control, uh, they they just don't even spend the time, like they don't even bother. If a game comes out and it's really bad or poorly received, they pretty much just drop it like a sack of bricks and move on to the next thing. Um, I think if you look at most of the games that are success stories in this way, it's stuff like No Man's Sky, where it was originally published by Sony, but Sony doesn't own Hello Games, and they kind of own the IP themselves so they could keep working on it forever, you know, in perpetuity Uh and make it the game that they wanted to be originally Baldur's Gate three, you know, where Larian, it's kind of their thing. And, you know, there is some publisher money involved in that, but they, you know, are kind of independent. Yeah. Yeah. 
or um, you know, well, it's not theirs, but it's it's theirs in terms of they they I don't, I, they were probably under a considerable less amount of pressure. Right, right, exactly. Or even like there's smaller games I can think of. Like there's a game called Baldo uh, that came out a few years ago, and it released in a really bad state. But it's a made by an indie team with like a couple people, and they've been working on it, and it's gotten updates over the last few years, and now it's like in a really good place. Um, so like most of these games where that actually works out, or even Cyberpunk. Where you know CD Projekt Red, like they are their own entity. They are themselves a publisher, but mm. um, you know that's kind of their baby, and so they were able to keep working on it because they don't have like a big overarching publisher like EA or Activision over them, like saying, mm-hmm. "Hey, we need this quarterly returns." You know, mm. uh, they could take the risk and then work on it and do an update two years down the line and have sure. it revitalize the game. Um, so I think just the business model of the big publishers doesn't really allow for them to do that. Um, but, I, uh, you know, Caitlin... It's thank you next, Yes, basically. exactly. And, and Caitlin, I think you're right that they may just see that as an opportunity to release like broken or half-made games, but then I don't think they will go back and fix them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that maybe is, you know, where that, that trend, if it does become a trend, won't really last because they're just not set up to support a game uh, for years and years like that, um, even after the initial launch window where most of the money has been made, um, mm. you know, is is there. Like, they they just want to be done and on to the next thing. And if the game comes out and it doesn't sell well, they'll just kill the studio. Yeah, and I guess that's kind of what I meant when I said I was afraid about it becoming the standard because not every developer could, like you mentioned, take the time and the money to try and fix a game and get it to a good state. So it might encourage developers or not encourage, but like we could see this where it's like, oh, well, if it, if it releases and it's, you know, not finished, well, we can try to fix it in post. Yeah. But mm-hmm. the reality is, I mean, like, you know, I'm uh, thinking about like a little game I reviewed a couple of years ago called Anthem that <laughs> yeah. was, was literally Anthem. half finished yeah. at release. And I mean, I would have been interested in seeing them try to fix it, but they didn't. And I yeah. mean, to be fair, it's probably deserved because well, it wasn't on a good game. Yeah. But well, like, the thing yeah. is, they, 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 tr- they I don't want to say they tried, but the plans were there to try to fix Anthem. The problem was there was no follow through. Yeah, this money wasn't there. I don't think they let them. Yeah. And I, I think yeah. that's yeah. the thing is the big the big publishers are just not going to let a developer work on a game like that and and let them work on it for two years to make it what it was supposed to be. Like they'll just well, say, no, you're done. Pull funding and. Mm. either kill the studio or put them on something else yeah well it's a it's a it's a push pull between publisher and developer in the case of uh cyberpunk 2077 no man's sky uh and to a lesser extent let's say fallout 76 mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's a good example. these these games were like cyberpunk 2077 wasn't a bad wasn't just a bad game it badly damaged cd project red's uh entire uh, the the mystique and like the the image that people have of CD Projekt Red that had been built up over the years through the Witcher series, like it badly damaged that. Repairing Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven and not just making it playable, but also making it into the game it should have been when it was released, was not just a matter of uh, uh, damage control over the game. It was damage control over the studio. Yeah. Same thing with No Man's Sky. It was that was their one product. They needed to make it good because if they didn't, that was it. Yeah. Fallout seventy six is another good example. I mean, Bethesda is massive, but like the damage that Fallout seventy six did to that studio uh, can be seen in every single review that was written of Starfield. 
I feel if, Stall- if Fallout 76, I might be wrong here, but I've read a lot about Starfield. I feel like if Fallout 76 was never released, a lot of the reviews of Starfield might have been a little bit kinder. I don't say, I don't think it would have been the game of the year. I don't think it would have gotten anything like that. But I think that people, the curtain was pulled back on Fallout 76. People saw Bethesda for what they were. And because of that, the reception of Starfield was a lot more critical than it otherwise may have been. Um, and Bethesda deserves it because the Bethesda for years depended on their fans to fix their games and put mm-hmm. them in more playable states through patches and mods and things like that. Um, something that I wanted to say was I also think that the redemption arc, uh, we're going to wrap this up in a sec, but I also think that the redemption arc uh, narrative, there are two different versions of it and they come from two different places. There are There's the redemption arc that's involved in an MMO and then there's the redemption arc that is involved in a single player. Uh, with an MMO, because you're paying monthly and because you expect new content to be added over time and because you expect, you know, basically you're paying for it, I feel like the redemption arc model is is more suited to that. Uh, whereas Final Fantasy XIV, for example, which is a fascinating story, by the way, uh, looking at what happened here, it was a, it wasn't just a matter of we need to fix this game because no one's buying it. It was a point of pride for them; they needed to fix this thing because it was so bad. But people continued to pay for it. It had such a loyal uh, backing of fans, and through updates over time, and yes, through the Realm Reborn uh, uh, patch, um, it, it made itself into what it is today. Fallout seventy six, to a lesser extent, is a similar example where they released it. They they made some extraordinarily poor choices in the development of that game, and over time, because people were still paying for it, they fixed it. Um, and I think that it, I think I accept it more from the MMO model than I do from the single player RPG model or single player game in general model. In which case, you pay for it once, and that's it. I, I, when I pay for something once, I, it, it, this is weird. It should be the other way around. But mentally, when I pay for something, I expect it to be done. If I'm paying for something over time, I expect it to get better. Does that make sense? No, it makes sense. I think mm-hmm. people, when they go to play like an MMO or a free-to-play game, they have the expectation that content will be added and the value you're going to get out of the game is really more what it is going to be a year or two down the line. And, you know, I think it's normal to not look at a single player game like that, right? Hmm. Um, There's just too many games coming out for people to really think about games in that way um, when they're single player stuff. So, And it's also important to remember that, I mean, certainly developers do not want to release a game unfinished. Publishers usually are pushing them to do so Mm -hmm. with non-negotiable release dates and things like that. But even publishers, even the greediest head up their own ass executive does not want a game to be released and to be trashed in the media and to be labeled an absolute disaster. They don't. They want these games to be massive successes. They want these games to earn money, not just in the initial burst, but over time. The problem is that they're they're in a different world of uh, looking at money and spreadsheets and other things like that. So they maybe they're just idiots. I don't know. But it seems like a lot of publishers don't want to take the steps necessary to ensure that a game is good when it's released. Uh, And I have to admit, although I don't love the redemption arc model, I do have a certain amount of respect for a developer and a publisher that after something is released and it's a mess, that they will fix it. 
and I don't mean bugs. Bugs are bugs are unacceptable to a certain extent. I mean like a, a broken game like Cyberpunk 2077 was, just a mess, something that didn't deliver on any level that it promised. The fact that they went back and they made it into, from my understanding, a game that if it was released now would be a contender for game of the year um, in, a game, in a year where there's a lot of games of the year. Um, I, I don't... I don't want to say I respect that, but there's a certain level of me that appreciates that care that they said, oh, crap, okay, we will do anything we need to fix this problem. It's an apology, and I respect a good apology. Anyway, that's my take. Those are your takes. Um, I'm assuming that everyone out there listening has their own takes on this. Uh, If you want us to discuss them, please send me an email about it. Uh, You can do so at podcast at rpgfan.com. I would love to hear from you if you want to chime in on this topic, or if you have any suggestions for future uh, topics for discussion, I would love to hear. Um, If you'd like to send me an email personally, you can do so at jlogan at rpgfan.com. You can also find me at mastodon at johnologan at mastodon.social. Caitlin, where can we find you online? You can email me at caitlina at rpgfan.com. Cool. And Ben? Yeah, you can email me at benloganlove at gmail.com. Uh, no one's on the dead bird app. Nope. The bird that has no the one bird should that has, be on the dead yeah, bird app. Yeah, the, the 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 dead bird app that has little X's over the eyes of the bird. <laughs> it's taking a long time to die. I mean, you know, despite despite uh, its owner's fervid attempts at killing it. Oh, he's doing his best. Leave him alone. I'm sure he'll kill it eventually. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, if you'd like to find a way to support us here at RPG Fan, you can do so by visiting our store. You can find it at www.rpgfan.com/shop. This is our anniversary year, and you can find lots of merch uh, focused on that on the shop, including a really, really cool shirt that shows all of the different RPG Fan logos over the years. Uh, Another way to support us is to check out all of our podcasts. Uh, If you'd like to support us at Random Encounter, uh, download some prior episodes. Two weeks ago, we were chatting about Wargroove 2, Dave the Diver, and Like a Dragon Gaiden, the man who erased his name. Uh, I had a really, really good time on that episode. It was fun talking about these games. Uh, We also have Retro Encounter. Uh, last week, the panel was in the first part of a game journal on Bloodborne. So if you're a fan of that game or you are very interested and think, I kind of want to check this out, uh, check out the second part that's coming out later this week. We also have Rhythm Encounter, which is RPG Fans Music Podcast. Last week, the panel was focused in on some seasonally appropriate games focused on autumn. And then next week, uh, we're going to have an episode focused on the works of Hiroki Kakuta, uh, who is the writer of a great deal of mana music. Um, I just want to thank both of you before we, you know, sign off uh, for joining me today on this Saturday afternoon uh, and, you know, playing through these games, taking the time to play them, review them. I, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Thanks for having us. It was, it's always a pleasure. Cool. If everyone out there enjoyed this podcast, you can share it with your friends. You can help us get the word out there and you can rate us on iTunes or other podcast players of choice. Leave us a review. Uh, and everyone out there, Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we're approaching the end of the year. There's going to be a lot of big episodes coming out, including our usual uh, look forward to what's to come. Our looking uh, retro will do its usual looking back at what happened. A lot of stuff happening. There's going to be a lot of features focused on that. So please visit the site, pay attention to it. And I promise you, it will all be well worth your time. So to everyone out there listening, whatever you're playing, have fun. <laughs>